We are continuing on our theme of what it means to trust God in difficult times, times of adversity, uncertainty, turmoil, uh, times when it seems that um, the things we do just do not turn out well, that we seem to be out of control. And the loss of control, or shall I say the illusion of control, is a profoundly difficult thing. Uh, men are never in control, but they surely like to fancy that they are in control. And when the props get kicked out, it causes men to begin to do things that they might not otherwise have done. Our prayers, have you noticed, become a good deal more fervent in, the, in these times? And people begin to uh, ask and seek and knock because it gets our attention. There's a phrase I'll be using again and again in this series. It comes from C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks to us in our conscience, and He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I'll say that numerous times because it's so incredibly important. Would it not be wonderful if God, if it were such that you could actually listen to God in your pleasures? Do you see what I mean? That you could enjoy all things and be thankful to Him and recognize your radical dependence upon Him, even in your pleasures, that we would cultivate a heart of gratitude. As uh, the psalmist says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonderful deeds to the sons of men. It's a motif that you see four times in Psalm 107, this motif of gratitude. But because people are not grateful, because they do not listen to His grace in their pleasures, they may be more apt to hear things when their conscience pricks them, but even there it may be, be insufficient. It may mean, uh, mean that they have to go on to uh, more severe areas, and that is to say pain, that God can get our pain, our attention through pain and adversity in a very profound way, and then it causes to wrestle with Him and wrestle with issues. We try to negotiate with Him, bargain with Him, all kinds of things. At the end of the day, we have to discuss uh, in our own uh, thoughts, in our own minds, what it means to be a person who uh, follows God's truth and what it means to be renewed by that truth in uh, a way that has an impact on the day-by-day -day decisions that we make. We've been talking about the whole idea of God's allowing evil and adversity. We've talked about the notion as well that God uses judgment in history. We've seen it again and again throughout Scripture and in individual lives. And where that judgment can be both punitive and it can be also something that teaches us. It can be purifying. And it depends on where the person is. But God's judgment can both purify, but it can also uh, punish. And we find ourselves in a situation, and while we do not have a Jeremiah on our scene, we can fairly reasonably guess that there are a number of things going on in our own nation and with our own uh, condition here in our recession and more than that, many, many things that are converging together that might suggest a growing sense of judgment. My, my own belief, by the way, we're in borrowed time. But if you want to know my view on that, just look at my DVD on the decline of nations. That'll really make you excited. It'll, it'll. <laughs> when I do this 10-point comparison between the, the, the uh, Roman Empire and its fall and the United States, uh, it's kind of a depressing thing. It'll throw you into paroxysms of despair, you see. It, <laughs> that's what it'll do. But it'll give you a realistic perspective that actually 
Um, do we suppose that God will, in fact, um, cause a people to be immune from consequences when they begin to turn more and more away from God, as I believe we've been doing and is measurable in a wide variety of areas in terms of the uh, moral, spiritual, and uh, uh, cultural uh, problems that we discover in our time. Uh, we saw as well that there's a complexity of spiritual warfare and that we are engaged in and immersed in a warfare that um, in a fallen world and with the consequences of human decisions, the cosmic spiritual warfare only adds to the problem. Uh, I want to point out as well something about the reality of the sovereignty of God because Daniel, for example, was written in a context in which God would be judging that empire, the empire of Babylon, and bringing about a new empire. And then that empire itself would be judged and so forth. And God uh, has a perspective that he communicates to Daniel. His people are in bondage and in in affliction. They need some perspective. And this exilic prophet, writing during the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, he himself was brought in within the first wave of three into Babylon in 605 B.C. Daniel, in this, in this book, gives us a perspective on the way God works and with nations. The book of Habakkuk wrestles with God. How is it that possible that you can use a nation even more wicked than we are to bring about judgment on ourselves? There he was referring to the Babylonians who would be coming. Nevertheless, God can use one nation as an instrument of judgment against another. And then that nation itself can be overthrown, as as Babylon was by the Persians. And that nation itself can be overthrown, as Persia was by the Greeks under the conquest of Alexander. And that nation as well can be overthrown, as Rome ultimately took over. And in each of those realms, Israel was effectively in dominion, in uh, bondage, and going through one nation after another. And the question would be, where are the promises of God? Now, they well know that they are brought into captivity because of their rebelliousness, their failure to listen to their prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. And because of this, there is a definite consequence, a definite judgment. Indeed, Jeremiah specifically predicted that they'd be there 70 years. It was very, very evident. And when you read later in Daniel chapter 9, he realizes that 70-year period is just about up, and then he intercedes for the people in chapter 10 with a, a remarkable prayer knowing that the time now is fulfilled and that God is going to restore his people. Now, this mindset then of nations coming and going is a theme of Daniel. The theme of Daniel has to do with the fact that God raises up kings and he deposes them. If you turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, speaking about the sovereignty of God, because that's what I want us to speak about this morning, is in the context of the adversities we see, we must never fail to grasp that God is ultimately in control and that he is sovereign over all things. And he accomplishes things um, for his own purposes. That all things that come to us come uh, through the sovereign hand of God. All things come from him and through him and to him. For me, this great statement, uh, when the mystery was revealed to Daniel about the king's dream in chapter 2, in this night vision, he blessed the God of heaven. And this is the theme in, in my mind of this book. Verse 20, 220, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. 
for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs, the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. It's very critical for us to see this. And we go through history and we look at the kinds of people who came into power throughout the course of human history. And we consider Nebuchadnezzar as only one of many. And we ask ourselves, how is it that God can allow this? Is he caught by surprise? No, he removes kings and establishes kings and uses them for his own purposes. For this very purpose I raised you up, he said uh, to, to Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, that I put you in this position, Pharaoh, whether you know it or not, to accomplish a particular purpose. We need to grasp the picture behind the, the human scene. And as we look at this, we see God enthroned on high. The book of Revelation explores this in a time of great judgment in Revelation 4 through, through 19. And during those, uh, those three cycles of seven judgments, you see a movement between earth and heaven, constantly moving back and forth between the sovereign throne of God in heaven and what's happening on earth. And there's this theme that we need to see, that, they, that God has authority over all things. I would turn you also from Daniel 2 over to Daniel 4, because after... Daniel's, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar's encounter with this dream and where he was given the full dream itself, the people were whining because he said, tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, how do I know if you're going to tell me the right interpretation? You tell me the dream and then I'll know if your interpretation's right. He says, that's not fair. No one's ever done this before. Uh, so he was going to kill them all and then Daniel is given the dream itself and it would impress you if you found out he's given you the exact dream that you had that no one else has heard. Uh, that got his attention, but not quite enough. And so uh, the next uh, scene we see in chapter 3 is with the king's golden image. And what happens with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is also impressive. And remember, he sees a fourth one in the, in the fire, and they're not burned, and they come out, and their clothes aren't even singed. There's no smell of fire on them, yet the people who threw them in were consumed because they'd heated it up seven times. That ought to get your attention. And indeed, he was somewhat impressed, you know, says, looks like God is, you know, the God of Israel is the God, but that's enough. Uh, but then we go on, it's a third lesson he has to get in chapter 4. And in this case, he has to go through a period of seven years of insanity, where he goes through what we might call boanthropy, which is, a, a, that's what it is, it means it's a cow man. Now, basically, there is such a disease. Uh, that, the, that the guy uh, effectively becomes like cattle. But the idea, there's, there's lycanthropy, people thinking they're wolves. There's, there's avianthropy, people thinking that they're... People can think they're all kinds of things. At any rate, God takes his, his sanity from him and warned him in advance that, look, if, in fact, you do not humble yourself and acknowledge that God is the one who reigns over all, then you will, in fact, lose your kingdom and you will become mad. But then ultimately, when he refuses to hear this, and he looks with pride some time later over Babylon, and he says, isn't this not great? Is this not Babylon, which I have built with my own hands? And then it happens. All that he was, was that Daniel warned him through the, through the Spirit of God. Nevertheless, the dream is, uh, is fulfilled. So after that uh, period of time, seven years, he re re his sanity returns. 
At the end of that period, he says, and this is a remarkable thing, that he, not only did his reason return, but he also received his kingdom back, which makes me suspect that Daniel may have been involved somehow in his position of authority to, to somehow hold the kingdom to get together. The fact that there wasn't some kind of a takeover is astounding in that time. Daniel was given a position of great authority and I believe held the kingdom together for that time. But he says, my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. This is chapter 4, uh, verse 34. For his kingdom is an everlasting king dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so he recognizes then at the very end, when it says, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. But this time he got the lesson. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's quite a word, isn't it? This is a powerful man, and he finally comes to the realization that God, the God of heaven and earth, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God, in fact, who is able to uh, humble those who walk in pride. He ex exalts and honors him. I believe that uh, those are the words spoken by a man who came to truly know God, which means if that's true, you'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. The point behind it all is that God is sovereign. He raises up kings. He deposes kings. No one can question what he does. And this is extremely important because if he's sovereign, if he foresees things, if he is in control, it means that things are ultimately occurring for a purpose that we cannot always see. This is why I've said before that his, he invites us to grasp that we must uh, trust him, though we cannot always understand him. And here I'm speaking about this mystery, and it is indeed a mystery. I want to underscore what I'm about to say is a mystery. It's the mystery of how on earth can God be sovereign over all things, and yet at the same time, we have responsible choices, and our choices really do matter, and that we are moral agents. That free human responsibility is equally true, even though God is sovereign. How can that be? Because if you pressed on this idea and looked at certain scriptures, let me read you a few texts. You'd question that, that latter. Uh, if you listen to Proverbs 16.33, for example, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, take that to the gambling uh, tables. That, that's an interesting notion. Uh, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, according to Proverbs 19.21. And in Psalm uh, 33.10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to noth nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. And then in Isaiah 46.10, the Lord declares the end from the beginning, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Does this mean we're pawns? Is this kismet? Fatalism? Determinism? No. Uh, the scriptures invite us to embrace a tension, and there are a number of tensions in scripture. And one of those tensions we must embrace, though we cannot fully grasp it, is the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both must be affirmed. 
And there are many such tensions. The, uh, the mystery of the Trinity is such a tension that, uh, that God is uh, one, he, he is one uh, person, one being, but uh, he consists of three co-eternal and co-equal persons who are all fully God but not each other. Now, I just said something I can't co- comprehend, nor can you. Uh, no one can grasp that. Or how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? His, the mystery of his working with time, that he is in all times, and with him a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, which means effectively you could well say then with him, a billion years is as a, a microsecond, and a microsecond is like a billion years. What's the ultimate extent of that one? Well, with him, an infinitesimal moment is like an eternity. But with, at, at the same quote time, because we're not dealing with time anymore, Eternity to him, all of eternity, he sees in a present glance. It's a very, he's the eternal now. He sees all things as a, at a present glance. This has a good deal to do with the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In the mystery of God, he sees all things together. There never was another plan. And I believe he's incorporated our choices in the fabric of his eternal plan. And there's a deep mystery about how that can be. Uh, but I have to affirm that these things go beyond me. By the way, going to the other side for a minute, just as God sees all things in a present glance, every moment for him is an eternity. That accounts for why he can hear all our prayers at once. He has eternity in this moment to hear all your prayers and to be concerned about each one of us. You ever fly over a city at night and you see all those lights and you represent the, know that they represent houses? How on earth can he be concerned about all those people? He's got all the time in the world. In every moment, he has forever. He knows every heart and knows us through and through and loves us. It's incomprehensibly large. But the more we stretch our minds, the better we will be because we will begin to realize with a big God, you have small problems. With a small God, you have big problems. Do you understand? It's a question of your point of view. The bigger you can stretch your vision of the living God, the greater you will grasp the possibility of trusting in him and realizing that he ultimately will do all things well. And I think this is a very healthy thing. If you just see providence in everything and say, and abdicate responsibility, then you've gone too far because we are like creatures of extreme. You get on the horse and fall off on the right side. You get back on and fall off on the left side. You know, this is the way we are. It's it's called the peril of the pendulum. The only time we're in balance is when you're going from one extreme to the to the next, right? That brief little moment. Even a clock that's not working is right twice a day. You know, that's but that's that's just the reality. As you go back and forth like this, so on the one hand, there are people who so emphasize the sovereignty of God they become hyper Calvinists to the point where it's almost like we are deterministic, and it's like we're almost um, instruments in uh, uh, of fate and so forth effectively, that there is no real uh, freedom of choice. But at the same time, people can go off and so emphasize human responsibility and go off the other side of the horse and then minimize the sovereignty of God. And I've seen people go both ways. Yeah, then they become hyper-Arminian. And so you have even theological terms for them, you see, um, for, for these. And the, 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 by the way, Arminians uh, out, um, are more Arminian than Jacob Arminius. And the Calvinists are more Calvinistic than, than John Calvin, but that's another question. Uh, they're, 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 people tend to go to the extreme. They, they lose the balance of the master. The disciples tend to lose the balance. 
In fact, what we must do is embrace a tensioned interplay where you hold them both and affirm, just as you deal with the, the fact that light is both particles and waves, and you can't fully grasp that. Nature's full of such mysteries. How can, how can these things be? Um, the more we learn about the natural world, the more we realize that there are some things we just have to realize we cannot fully grasp. They, they transcend our grasp. So the wise course then would be to, in fact, um, believe that God's sovereign, but at the same time, one does well to engage in, in our own responsibilities as well. So uh, it's, it's, it's a good thing to... Um, Pray that you get to the other side, but it's probably a good idea to be rowing while you're doing this. You kind of put them together a little bit, you know? A little, little combination there. Sometimes we expect him to be doing one thing, and he's over here. And so there's the other side of the coin. I think he's, you're gonna, we're going to all discover he was a good deal more involved with us than we thought in this life. I, ha I believe we're going to discover that. But right now, <clears throat> he invites us to take the risk of, of pursuing him, walking by uh, faith and not by sight. We do not always see those things. Every so often, God may do something that's palpably stunning. <clears throat> but do not make that something that you regard to be your due. Because if you do, then you would become bitter if it didn't do it in that way. I've had remarkable experiences, but I, I've also had remarkable seasons of dryness and aridity. Sometimes, have you all experienced this where it seems that your prayers aren't going anywhere? It seems that you're arid and dry, and it seems that you, you're not doing anything different. You, you pray about it. You ask if there's any sin in your life. You ask the Spirit to convict you. You seem to be doing okay there. Uh, you, still, uh, you still talk with God. You read the Scriptures, but it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. This is a common experience throughout the history of the church. And you have to recognize there are going to be seasons of dryness and aridity, and every so often he will give us something, perhaps, that's um, extraordinary. But normally, much of this life is led, led in the glory of the grind, and, we, and that prayers offered in times of dryness may often be more meaningful than the time prayer offered when things are going very well. So that's another factor as well. God has created the, the world in such a way that everything in this created order, everything in the natural world, points beyond itself to spiritual truth for those who have the eyes to see. I'm very convinced of that. Anything you look at, whether it's a, a weed or whether it's a bird or an insect, it doesn't matter what it is, a stone, if you really meditate upon that, there's spiritual truth to be seen in that. The question is the seeing eye, and my, my view there is, is whether we can blind ourselves by refusing to see what's in front of us. After a while, you can blind yourself. You can also make your hearing dull. If you, for example, it's possible for you to uh, begin to diminish your capacity to hear the convicting word of the Spirit of God in your life by refusing to respond. And every time you refuse to respond, it makes it a little bit more difficult for you to hear that word of conviction. And you can so you can harden your hearts and your conscience can be seared. That's a possibility. That's the frightening and chilling aspect of human freedom that God gives us that, that, that frightening gift and knows very well that such a gift can and will be used in a wrong way. Yet he himself underwrote the cost, as we saw last time we were together, took upon himself the, the sins of the world and became those things on our behalf. So there is this deep and profound mystery that we have to in involve in. God is not aloof. We, the cross shows the light of that. He is intimate and involved and cares for us.
If, if that were not the case, why would Jesus come and endure what he did in, in the most ignominious uh, of deaths and to bear our sin? So this God is not playing a cosmic chess game. He loves us and is intimately concerned with us. And he wants us to be with him where he is. This is his desire. But at the same time, we recognize because of the, the, of the nature of this world, the warfare, the blindness caused by human decisions, the disease death environment, and all these things, we're in a world where we're not, clearly we're not home yet. Now we wait for that world. And I anticipate the, the tearless, sinless, painless world of heaven. We're not ready for that yet, but I anticipate that. And then there will be no sorrow, no pain. Uh, this adversity, your affliction, whatever pain you're going through, is only for a short moment, just for a season, relative to eternity. What's, what's three, four, five decades compared to eternity? You have to look at it this way and contextualize. That's why I tell people a lot of times that uh, you're only going to have to go through this another few decades max. That's the most you'll ever have to suffer. After that, there's no more suffering. But that's not to trivialize, it's to contextualize. Well, people are in danger when they, ha they uh, have a certain set of expectations. I have had some extraordinary experiences. I would like them to be more frequent. They are not. But what I do, though, is I remember those times that God has shown up. And, he, and I think if you really think about it, you've, we all have some kind of a history where there's been some point at which he sh showed up in your life. Somewhere along the line, you've got to remember that history. And you cling to him and you get a perspective what he's done in, in history, human history, what he's done in Scripture, what he's done in your life. We are in a warfare, and we don't see. Uh, we see through a glass darkly. And so I think uh, those, uh, and those times, by the way, doubt is not a bad thing because it forces you to wrestle. It forces you to wrestle with the issues of truth and what am I <coughs> holding on to? Uh, I still remember certain key moments when I questioned, is, is any of this stuff true? And uh, then I would reflect upon the reality of the resurrection, the work, uh, who Jesus really was, uh, his miracles and all those things, the, the things that I've seen in the world. And you, at least you have a perspective, but you have to sometimes wrestle with these things. Because when you, we don't wrestle with these things, then we become shallow. Uh, and I think there's a danger in that. Last uh, thought um, is that God's sovereignty then is a doctrine that, in my view, gives me great assurance of hope that he will, really will uh, bring all things to a proper end. And that what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is really what's going to take place. And if I hold on to that, and if I read Revelation 21, it's, by the way, it's a good thing to read those two chapters from time to time to get some perspective, because that's going to be your future. It's a good thing to do that, to contextualize this short little time in the Shadowlands.